To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the original true crime review podcast that digs into true crime, pop culture, other podcasts. And this week, an eight-year-old boy dies after months of severe abuse. Who is to blame? We'll talk about Netflix's The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez. Then, what media, books, films, true crime podcasts, anything else should you be consuming this spring? We'll give you a rundown of our latest personal recommendations. Join me to get those things done and even more is my real-life husband and true crime co-author, former TV journalist and my favorite travel companion, Kevin Flynn. Hello, Kevin. Morning, Rebecca. Also with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, and certified cat lady, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Meow. (laughs) (laughs) Finally with us is our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Hello, Rebecca. One thing before we start the show, this is not in the script, so Kevin doesn't know we're going to do it. Lara and Toby, can you just join me in applauding Kevin for his masterful work putting together our 200th episode special that dropped last week? I hadn't heard it before it came out. I'd love to hear your guys' reactions to hearing all that old tape of us and fan reactions and those old clips. Toby, what did you think of the 200th anniversary special? It was actually very fun. It was fun. <laughs> actually. <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting it to be real downer. No, it was fun. I, it was cool. Like Some of that stuff I honestly had completely forgotten about. And then there was that cringy moment where I was waiting for us when you said, oh, let's hear what we sounded like right at the beginning. And it didn't sound nearly as bad as I had envisioned it sounding. <laughs> right. And it was Yeah, you cool. never got any better. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I plateaued after, after episode two. Wow. It's been sort of steady on since then. Yeah, and then it was cool getting all the feedback on social media. That was fun. And then I actually got an email about an hour ago from my parents saying how much they enjoyed it Aww. and saying kudos to Kevin for- uh, Oh, they thought it was brilliantly edited. Thanks, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Had a Ball. a lot of laughs. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it was awesome. Good work. I, I'm sure it must have taken- It took months. Like, like you were working for that on months. Yeah. Remember the time I slacked everybody from the airport? I was working on it then. Yeah. No, oh, he's been God. working. You've been working for so long. And you know, yeah. I my expectations were- I don't want they weren't low, but it was just like, okay, we're going to be on vacation and we're putting out this thing. It's going to be a clip show. Yeah, exactly. Wah, wah, wah. I- even though I was in it, I was very entertained by it. It's beautifully done. Laura, what did you think? I loved it. I listened to it twice and I started <laughs> listening a third time. Uh, it was just so fun. And like then I had Ken listen to it. And, you know, Ken's not a huge podcast listener to any podcast. And he was like laughing out loud upstairs at Kevin with no underwear on. Yes. Um, <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. To- yep. Toby's apology letter. To Ireland. Uh, statement. Yes. And it was just, there were so many fun things. And I'm like the moose meat chili. Um, there was just, and then I think my favorite part was, I forget the Amazon list. I really wish we still had that. Um, the artificial insemination uh, <laughs> montage. Yes. Uh, of, that was so much fun. AI. Um, 
Yes, A-I-L. We really milked that for weeks. <laughs> we milked it? Wait a minute, what do you mean we milked it? <laughs> yeah. I didn't remember, and that and that brought back that whole memory of how I got out of my artificial insemination course, and I was like, wow, I do have a story for everything. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, the reason I bring it up, Kevin, is not just to congratulate you on your like months of work compiling like basically five years of clips. You did forget one memorable one, as we got many notes about. Which one? I'm Bill Rankin. <laughs> I have oh, a crippling no. addiction to pornography. Oh, I'm sorry, Bill We're Rankin. We're so yes. Americans. Oh. <laughs> but uh, oh, I forgot about that. that being said, the reason I bring it up is not just to congratulate you, but also to let our fans know, if you're listening to this show and you heard the 200th episode special, when I was listening to it, I just thought one thing. This show, that episode, would be a great way to like let other people like give them a primer about what our podcast is, a new listener, and be like, listen to this podcast about true crime. Here's a great episode to get you started that will catch you up on who these people are and what they're about. Don't you think that would be a good like place to start for brand new listeners? I don't think our regular shows are as good as that one. So. Well, I just want to give our yeah. listeners the challenge I'm giving to you. <laughs> Everything else will be a disappointment. Exactly. If, if, if you feel like your friends need to join the Crime Writers on Family, I am asking you to just like introduce a few people to our podcast, have them start with our 200th anniversary special. And then their periods will sync up. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Karma's not getting any better, Kevin. (laughs) 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 I killed Rebecca. Sorry, I've had the cough last That was Actually, that was Ken's other favorite part because he used to work in the emergency room and he said that's what happened with all the nurses. All right. All right. (laughs) It's not sexist if it's true. Okay, so (laughs) on tonight's Patreon after show, which is actually dropping at the same time as this podcast. So if you're a member of our Patreon at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, you can get the after show. We're going to be talking about Laura Bricker's epic horrible vacation trip to an indoor water park. Uh, We're also going to be talking about my and Kevin's London meetup with some of our now favorite fans. And Toby has a story about how he will be traveling into the heart of darkness and coronavirus. So we're talking about all that stuff on the after show. So if you subscribe at patreon.com slash partners in crime media, it's like a little bit of a tip jar. You'll get the four extra podcasts that we make that our biggest fans get. Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club podcast, The Crime Writers on After Show, which is our weekly after show, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker podcast, and me and Kevin's advice podcast called Married with Podcast. Podcast. So that's it for the promo section of this podcast. Wait, there's a new deep dive coming out soon. Oh, what is it, Toby? What's it about? I don't know. It's, um, <laughs> I don't know the book. I don't know. It's, it's called it. a non-story. Oh, oh, a book we've never heard about and a case we don't yeah. know anything about. Was it good? Are you excited for it to come out? Yeah, no, it was, it was an awesome, it was an awesome discussion. Well, I can't wait to hear that one, Toby. And I know that lots of other people in the world who've been following a non-Syed's case and the serial case cannot wait to hear it either. So look for that in our Patreon at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Are you guys ready to start a podcast? We've got a lot to do. First mm-hmm. topic is difficult, but let's get into it, shall we? All right. No one emergency. Yes, um, I would like to, um, um, my son is not breathing. Your son is what? He's not breathing. Hold on one second. I'm going to transfer you over to the fire department. Don't hang up. 
At a Los Angeles emergency room, paramedics bring in an eight-year-old boy in cardiac arrest. The trauma team is shocked at the condition of their young patient. It's a crazy madhouse. Everybody's around him. Everybody's just working on him. All hands on deck. So I'm trying to chart, and as I'm like looking up and they're calling things out, I'm just like in awe. Like I can't even believe what they're telling me is what they're seeing. The local paper turns the spotlight on the death of Gabriel Fernandez. After public outrage, prosecutors charge not only Gabriel's mother and her boyfriend, but the social workers who failed to heed the many signs of severe abuse the child was suffering. How did a child who had so many signs of repeated and long-term abuse slip through the cracks? It really wasn't until I got all of the evidence that I realized how egregious the case was. This was a story that could not be ignored. The question was, could we uncover what was really going on? In Netflix's six-part series, The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez, viewers learn the long trail of physical and emotional abuse suffered by the child and the many, many missed opportunities to remove him from harm's way. It also dives into issues around the failings of law enforcement, social services, elected officials, and the system's desire to protect itself at the expense of the children it's supposed to help. Spoiler alert, we are going to be talking about plot points from the trials of Gabriel Fernandez on Netflix. So if you want to remain spoiler free, just go to the estimated time code listed in our show notes. And a quick trigger warning, we are going to be talking about severe abuse during the review of this documentary. It's impossible not to do. Lara Bricker, this documentary opens with an incredibly compelling scene. I'm going to play a clip of it right now. It's a trauma nurse describing the evening that Gabriel Fernandez came into the emergency room. I remember his throat just looked like somebody burned him, bruising and cuts all over his face, black eyes, cuts everywhere. He had like a weird cut above his penis. He had abrasions like on the top of his foot, like he'd been dragged, ligature marks on his ankles, like he'd been tied up. I mean, just every, every part on his body, there was just something. Laura, what did you think of this as the table setting for this documentary? I think that this was like a perfect way to lead into this story because right off from the top, we know this is going to be a horrific story. And we are listening to a nurse who's a trauma nurse who has seen, I mean, imagine, I imagine that this nurse has seen a lot of uh, horrific things in her career. And she's the charting nurse. So she's the one who just, she's there. She's, she's taking the notes and she's keeping the chart while this is happening. So she's seeing everything as it's unfolding and recording it. And watching her just break down as she's talking about the type of injuries that they are seeing just all over his body. I think that really sets you up for just how horrific this whole story is going to be. Because, you know, I'm married to a first responder and, and people that work in those fields really learn how to kind of block that stuff out. And when it's this bad that you can't block it out and it affects you that much, you know that you're getting into something that is going to be pretty dark and pretty upsetting. But I think it was a good way to to launch this story to kind of like the signpost like, hey, this is going to be bad. It's bad. But, you know, Toby, one of the things I found myself thinking about when I was watching this, you know, six part documentary, I had been warned because I watched this full transparency before I interviewed the director and the reporter who's in the documentary for the Netflix podcast. You can't make this up. I've been warned by the producer that it was like a tremendously difficult watch, 
that she had a difficult time getting through it. Toby, they did not leave any stone unturned in the trials of Gabriel Fernandez. Is that how you felt when you were watching it, too? Like they they didn't like leave out any chapters here. I guess not quite in the same way that you did, you know, because they do make decisions about what they're going to pay particular attention to and what they're going to pay somewhat less attention to. And I don't want to skip ahead too far. But for me, I thought almost the most interesting sort of legal thing that was going on was the fact that these social workers were being charged. Yeah. And that string kind of goes away for a while. And you, you, you find out what the resolution is. But I almost would have been more interested in hearing about that than when they, they do Sorrow's Trial, which is good. And there's, you know, there's definitely tension around it in that you're wondering, you know, what the jury's going to come to and stuff. But that to me was somewhat less interesting uh, because he's just clearly guilty. And it's, a mat- it's just a matter of how badly people want him to be punished mm. or, or whether it's first or second degree murder. Versus this other question, which I which I think the documentary basically does a good job w- with, which is where does responsibility lie? Exactly. And to what degree are people culpable for letting this very apparent? I mean, it was less so with the social workers, I guess, but with the particularly the school, like there was no question that this kid was being horribly abused. Like his his classmates were aghast and horrified by his appearance. Um, and you're talking about, what, seven and eight-year-old kids. And the fact that adults are also seeing him and he's still going home at night and there's not every day police knocking on the door of that house. So I guess I'm just, I, I take a little bit of issue with it in that it didn't follow the paths that I thought were most interesting all the time. And I also, you know, there are times when, you know, if we hadn't been reviewing it, I don't know if I would have kept kept on with it yeah um it's 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 really difficult i don't think i've consumed something where i've been paying that much attention to especially a child who's undergone the amount of stuff that that gabriel underwent and i just i i found it draining and you know there are times when i was just like you know i could just as happily turn this off and not watch the rest of it is interesting as it is. Hmm. You know, I, I, I found myself, it's funny because Toby, I think that, I mean, I agree with everything you said. It was tremendously difficult. But for me, the factor that kept me wanting to watch was like, I wanted to know why. I mean, I, I just kept finding myself like you talked about the school and the, the teacher in particular, I think is one of the most heartbreaking characters in the documentary. I called the principal to my room. I called Gabriel to the door And I said, come over here. And I was telling the principal, like, you got to see, like, could we take pictures? He immediately just stopped. He said, oh, oh, sit down, son, sit down. And then he said, you know, we don't investigate. That's investigating. We don't do that. You know, if we see something, we just report it. But we don't investigate. I didn't ask him for any more help after that. Kevin, this really is very much a character-driven story. And one of the characters at the center of it is Jonathan Hitami, the prosecutor who Mm -hmm. sort of is our guide through the crime, through the prosecutions of both Isaro and Pearl, and also brings a lot of himself to it, which is revealed in a great twist later in the documentary when they're talking about corruption at the sheriff's department and we learn his wife is a cop. 
Well, I think there's like two personal revelations about him. One is sort of, uh, I think maybe in the second or third episode, where he talks about his own upbringing. Yes. And where he had been abused as a child. And I, I started thinking about like how when you're making a documentary and you're, you know, you're sitting with the guy who's going to be the prosecutor in the case, you don't expect to get something like that. You don't go out, you know, say, oh, well, we're going to find all the deep psychological baggage of all the people that we're going to be interviewing. But when it comes up, you have to use it. Mm. It has to inform sort of what story you're going to tell and the manner in which you tell it. And they're already predisposed to doing these peripheral diversions, talking about different issues. You know, they'll take five minutes and they'll go into talking about the different algorithms that they're oh, using. Oh, the solution journalism, what could help, yeah. Yeah, you know, and they'll, so they take five minutes and they talk about his upbringing, or he talks about his own upbringing. And I found that to be, you know, very enlightening. You know, it's probably, you know, looking at all the personal stories that are touched in this documentary, it's probably not the worst, but it really informs, you know, who this person is and why they are driven for justice. We all want to believe that nobody would intentionally do that to a child. People want to know why did it happen. There must be some reason. Did the system fail him here? I can say this. I'm part of the system too, so I have an obligation, not only in this case, but every case, to do my part. To make sure that everybody that I come in contact with gets justice. Let's make sure the people who are responsible for this are held responsible for it. The other reveal that you're talking about is we find out later that his wife is in the sheriff's department, yep. the same department that he can't get information from right. about their own internal investigation. And, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's just like, of course the cops are going to close ranks and they'd be willing to prompt a, a Brady violation in a death penalty case just so they don't get embarrassed. Right. And, I, you know, we did see a lot about, you know, their stonewalling. Didn't see a lot about what the consequences were for that, probably because there weren't any. Right. Well, we know that the cops, and we're going to call them cops uh, generically. Yeah. Because there were also some hero cops, I think, mm -hmm. in this documentary, especially when we see the siblings of Gabriel yeah. being interviewed. The section with the siblings was, to me, the most heartbreaking section of the documentary. Uh, for listeners who haven't watched it, Gabriel Fernandez was horribly tortured and abused by his mother and her partner. And in this complex, weird, psychosexual situation where primarily he was the victim. Um, when I talked to the director of the documentary and the journalist in the, from the L.A. Times who appears in the documentary, Garrett Thoroff, uh, it's clear the other kids also experienced some abuse, but nothing like what Gabriel experienced. So what happens is that... Um, you know, they are both arrested after his death. The other two siblings are brought in. They're interviewed. They're asked to testify at trial, but they're interviewed by police. And we see repeatedly these two like hero cops telling the other kids like, this is not your fault. This is not your fault. This is not your fault. Even though they were witnesses, even though they were sometimes asked to join in in the abuse, even though they knew their sibling was being starved to death in a cabinet, like trying to feed him banana. It was heartbreaking. Laura, one of the things I kept thinking about when I was watching this that I was wondering how you would react, because I just think there are so many rage inducing things and so many things that are like our social justice warrior minds want to get behind. 
The documentary tries to engender, I don't want to say sympathy, but to just dig in a little bit into Pearl, the mother's underlying issues. She clearly, clearly has some mental illness or a low IQ or uh, something else going on. We hear it in those tapes when she's in jail, interacting with guards. What the fuck if Fernandez me? What the fuck if Fernandez me? What? 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 There's something going on there. We hear something about his sorrow sort of being indoctrinated into this. And the documentary tries to uncover that. I think it's the one thing they almost can't because it is so difficult to feel anything for these people. Well, how did you react when we sort of were, were getting the backstories of these two adults who tortured this boy to death? Yeah, so I was, I tried, but I was like, okay, take a step back. Let's try to look at this, you know, through like defense eyes. Like what is there, you know, what's the story with this mother? How did she get to this point? And I was trying to like just you know, look at it and in, in try to find something sympathetic towards her, like, shitty upbringing and everything. And and it didn't sound like it, but I just, I couldn't get there because she, watching her, showed no emotion and no visible, like, remorse or anything at any point. Even when she read her statement at the end in court, I just didn't feel like a lot of sincerity coming from her. But then I was like, you know, she's probably, I mean, she probably was, you know, from what we heard, traumatized. She was gang raped. She ran away at the age of 11. She had, you know, low low intellect, all sorts of diagnoses, uh, drug use at a very young age. But I just, I don't know. When when I looked at the pictures of that little boy, I just couldn't I couldn't find any sympathy for her. And even after all she had gone through, I just I, I had a really hard time trying. And, and for him, then when they brought all the old ladies that he was driving oh. on, like the nursing home trips, I'm like, yes. fuck them. Old ladies. Oh, shaggy. This isn't the shaggy we knew. <laughs> I'm like, I, I don't fucking care if he drove you to the mall. That's whatever. Like, get over it. <laughs> well, that was the, the one, part where I had some rage coming out. I was like, No, I, I totally agree. But the one thing I will say is that I do think what the filmmakers were trying to do is impress upon the viewer the gravity of a death penalty case. And that we had this like one juror who's like, it shouldn't be easy to make this choice. And I think like all four of us have issues with the death penalty. Yeah. In every situation. Although in this situation, even the, you know, the young woman juror, by the way, how the fuck did they get access to all those jurors? The whole other thing we'll talk about. I know. The young woman juror was like, I I don't believe in the death penalty, whatever. And then she was like, from the very beginning, like, I couldn't imagine not giving the death penalty in this case. I just think that they were they were trying to impress upon us the difficulty of making that decision and bringing all those old ladies in that were basically saying like he used to be a good like there's good some good lurking in there but the jurors yeah. didn't see it. I mean Toby the thing I wanted to ask you about I want to call back on something you were talking about before was the social workers because there is kind of a complicated picture there it's a system that people work within there's a whole episode about the outsourcing of social work in this community to an incredibly evilly named company called Maximus, which, by the way, <laughs> it's like a condom company. <laughs> it's, it sounds like a thing you would make up in a really poorly written, like, apocalypse, post-apocalyptic <laughs> novel about the evil company that's taken over the care of people. You mean Maximus? Exactly. 
Uh, Toby, I'm curious as to what... I am the CEO of Maximus. Exactly. Right? He's like twirling his thumb in his the corner of his mouth. Twirling his mustache. <laughs> uh, Toby... No overtime for anyone. Exactly. Oh, that whole thing with the security guard seeing yeah. Gabriel and then trying to... And the lady saying we all have to go home. Whole... Oh, crazy. Toby, I'd love to know your thoughts on these four prosecuted social workers, because that was what made this case national news, right? Uh, I guess. It wasn't. I didn't. <laughs> this was the first I heard about it. Um, they do talk to a guy, like an older guy. I, I can't remember exactly what his deal was, but he says, you know, they definitely shouldn't be working there anymore. But, you know, I don't want to comment about whether what they did was a criminal violation. You know, they talk to the one guy who's a supervisor, and he's talking about how he has, like, he oversees 180 different cases, or he oversees people who are responsible for 180 different cases, and they're all going to have their complexities. There's not going to be things that are going to point to one having such a greater potential for, you know, a child ending up dead than others, particularly if every time somebody goes, Gabriel's locked in his box or whatever. So in some ways, it's like, how can they be expected to understand it given the workload that they have? The flip side of it is the details you get about them basically like not even seeking Gabriel out right. to talk to, right? but just kind of talking to Pearl in particular yeah. and just asking her how things are going. And she's like, oh, yeah, everything's fine. Or, yeah, he he fell down the stairs again or he walked into a door. And it's like these are like the almost joke excuses that, you know, you see for people who get, you know, beat up or domestic violence or whatever. That's like the cliched excuse that's given. So the fact that they're like, oh, OK, well, you know, I guess he, he seems kind of clumsy. It's it's kind of mind boggling, mm. um, and I get the feeling, particularly that old woman, uh, the older woman, Pat Clements. What are you calling me about? I would like to um, speak with you regarding your prior employment by LA County. Why? Um, I have just a few like procedural questions. I would like. Are you good? Are you going to charge me with something? I have no way of knowing that. I'm, I'm an investigator. Why am I being disregarding the little boy? Yes, yes it is. I didn't know you would do that. They're lying. Oh, oh God. She seems like the person who should not be doing this. You know, it's clear, you know, what she thinks is important in that she, she doesn't want any culpability. Uh, she doesn't seem particularly introspective about what happened. Like, I just didn't do anything wrong or whatever. It was like, well, like, A, it seems pretty clearly that you did. And B, even if you don't take that, the fact that you backdated these reports so that it didn't look like you were, you know, checking in on them during the crucial moments, that's not right. She'd mm. been a nun. Yeah. So, and then people are just like, she's unpleasant, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's a tough one. You know, again, I think charging these people criminally, like, once you start going down that road, the principal of the school that he went to, mm -hmm. are you going to charge him? And, why, he's and, a, and he's, then why weren't the sheriff's department cops charged, right? Right. And, and instead, what they're, they're thinking is, well, I'll, I'll pick him up and I'll put him in the back of my squad car and tell him to stop lying. Yeah. 
It's like, dude, did you take a look at this kid? So what's I mean, worse? It's... What's worse? That the social worker, the young, inexperienced social worker, not Pat Clements, the other woman, who was basically just sort of clueless and just trying to get through things as quickly as possible because that's what she was told to do. What's worse? That woman who was criminally charged or the cop who went to the house who didn't even like question the mother's story and who yelled at a kid after the teacher repeatedly reported that he was showing up at school and clearly been abused. Like to me, it's like not even close. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have like a lot of sympathy for the social workers at the same time. I understand they're working in a system that's one step removed. Like, I I do think it's very powerful that we see a ride along with a social worker who actually does what she's supposed to do. Right, Kevin? Yeah. I was just about to point that out. You know, one of the diversions here is we see, you know, a good social worker doing a welfare check and, and everything that goes into that flushing the toilet, looking through the fridge. I mean, that's on top of physically checking the child. There is absolutely no way, if that were the social worker that went to Pearl's place, that Gabriel would still be in that house. Yeah. Can I um, just quickly interject in that? I think the the one difference, and I don't know, and this, this is kind of coming from ignorance, but it seemed like in that case that there was a specific charge that she was going to investigate, mm. and that so she had police with her when she knocked on the door. And I don't know if, if there are police accompanying people just for routine checks. And I, and I kind of felt like one of the issues was, you know, Zario was, he was like 6'4", 270. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, a young, inexperienced social worker shows up and that guy's like opening the door. You know, I think, you know, if you don't have police behind you, I think it's probably pretty intimidating. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry to. to no, 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 no. I think I think you're right. I think it is more complicated than just saying she was good at her job and people were bad at their job. Laura, we did get that little diversion that Kevin mentioned into um, the solutions journalism part of the documentary, where there's this program that they're using, I believe, in what Allegheny, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, uh, around this uh, data, re- basically this data program that isn't trying to like replace people with robots, but is basically using reports, data, sort of putting all of the factors around a family, around a child, and basically calculating risk. And there's this one really powerful moment. I'm watching this and I'm thinking, like, why is this here? And then the woman who runs that program basically says, we're willing to question the system and all people who work in the system, but then someone puts forth a logical thing that would just help, not make decisions, but just help. And everybody shits on that too, because it's like automating care when the care that's happening with people is also failing. Yeah. What do you think of just that idea? It's complicated, right? It is complicated. I mean, the thing that, you know, I'm watching that at first and I'm like, well, how accurate can that be? And I'm like, well, it's got to be more accurate than just not responding to calls, at least trying to sort of triage and figure out which calls to respond to first. You know, we need to invest some more so that we have more resources because I think it's absolutely bullshit and ridiculous that we are not responding out or not we but I mean mean, we I guess as a society as like you know a system here when there are reports made that they're like oh we don't have time to respond to that And, and I'm like you should like if you get a report of a child that's possibly being abused what the fuck you've got I mean like that made me wild to think that we are at a place where uh, you know, the the guy that was the guard and they're like, ah, we can't work overtime. Go home. And like, no, 
that's not how it works. Um, so yeah, so if if they're not going to put more manpower, if they're not going to get their act together and get organized, why not take the help from this other organization so that you could at least try to help some children? But anyway, don't get me started. Kevin, uh, the judge in Isaro and Pearl's case. Yeah. He had a bright red microphone. Fuck, he's got his own podcast or something? What? I mean, I don't want to divert from all these serious topics, but that was one little distracting detail. I'd like you to take a minute and just theorize on what is the story behind that bright red microphone. Um, I think in a past life, he was a lounge singer. Mm. And that was, he has an incredible singing voice, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, he, uh, maybe he was a school principal. Yeah. And he did morning announcements and it was... I'm thinking that that is his personal microphone and not a government-issued Well, he certainly wasn't on of... mic for the film. It's not like he was <laughs> shouting the whole time. All right, well, I asked you that lighter question because um, I wanted to get to the part most difficult part for me. I really think for me, I have developed a discipline about not looking away for difficult things. I mean, we talk a lot about podcasts involving sexual assault. Mm-hmm. We've reviewed some very difficult things in the last few months. And I've developed discipline where it's like my responsibility to watch. And I actually think this was beautifully made. And I, when an episode would end, I'd want to watch the next one because there was a cliffhanger. It was like nicely constructed yep, with yep. plenty of twists and turns. The ending of this thing completely broke me. Because at the end, we have Isaro's trial and we have the sentencing. And that last episode does kind of go on like a little bit long. I think we both agreed. But then we hear at the end of the episode that... Shortly after this trial ended, there's yet another victim. It was Wednesday at 12.15 in the afternoon when deputies responded to the Village Point apartment complex on Challenger Way in Lancaster for a call of a little boy not breathing. The child's mother reportedly telling deputies he had fallen. The little boy was rushed to the hospital in critical condition and just 18 and a half hours later, 10-year-old Anthony was dead. And then there's like an incredible montage of the neighborhoods of Gabriel's life, of photos of him. Laura, was I the only one who was completely wrecked by the way they put together the end of this show? No, it was just, I I, I couldn't, I was already down at that point. I couldn't take any more, Rebecca. I was just like, oh man. And then when they had the Gabriel's house section that they did in his memory, I was just, the whole thing was just so sad. But it was like it was like kicking somebody when they were down at that point because it was just more heartbreak to see those pictures after listening to everything that he went through. And we haven't even talked about the gay uncles who I loved, who were like the only, I, I'm like those that, you know, he actually had love for that brief period in his early life because of those men. So yeah. good for them. Kevin, 150 plus kids have died in similar circumstances to Gabriel after his mm, death yeah. and after his trial. It's shattering, right? Yes. How did you feel at the end of this documentary? Did it sort of like make you feel like you couldn't watch things like this anymore, but that you, it's your responsibility to, not, not just to watch them, but to try to be engrossed by them, to try to want to watch them? I think it's the kind of thing that if you had never seen this documentary and you asked, does this happen? You would probably say, Yes, unfortunately it does, uh, but it's rare. And, well, I guess statistically for the for the great number of children that go through the system, that, yeah, there aren't a lot of Gabriel Fernandez's, but one is too many. And the fact that there's over 100 deaths, and so that probably means there are a great number more who are abused almost to that point, uh, physically and emotionally with 
you know, and and those are the ones that come to the surface. There seem to be other ones that like we just don't know about. Mm. It was very engrossing, and I think the whole reason why this took off was because of local journalism to the L.A. Times. They pressed and pressed and pressed. There was a little, you know, record that just showed the kid's name and his age and that he died. And they kept pulling that string until they got more and more answers. And then it became public outcry. Mm. And that's because the media is the watchdog. Again, this is just another one of the side stories that they tell. But that's an important one. You have to remember, if it weren't for the persistence of the journalists and shedding light on a very closed system, that what went on with Gabriel Fernandez would never have come to light. And it's the kind of thing where you hope that it would make changes elsewhere. And it, it hasn't. All right. Well, let's do what we do. Let's let our listeners know, should they check out The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez? It's a six-part documentary on Netflix. I think we've all agree that it's a very difficult watch. But Laura Bricker, in terms of whether our listeners should check it out or not, do you give a thumbs up or thumbs down to The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez on Netflix? So this is... Um this is a tough one because this is this was extremely well done in terms of the way that it was made, the people they had access to. The story was an important story. So that's a thumbs up. But I I mean, honestly, I had a really hard time getting through it. Uh, like Toby, I, I was like, you know, I could stop watching because this is just really difficult. But what I would say, I was thinking about like, who should watch this? And you know who should watch this? are people that are going into the field of child protective services, social workers, law enforcement, uh, people that are going to be dealing within that that realm that are going to be doing this kind of work. I think that this should be like mandatory watching for people that are going to be working in that field because, you know, that's where I think it could do some good. Who is cat is that weighing it's Rocky, in? Is, is Rocky that a thumbs Flintstone. up or thumbs down from Rocky? Rocky Flintstone is trapped in here with me. <laughs> he, he came in and he's walking around now going, Row! he's like not. Yeah, that's what he has to say about that. Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down for the trials of Gabriel Fernandez on Netflix? You know, I, I, I give it a thumbs up. You know, it's really well done. And you know, it, it is one of those things where I think in order to shine a light on the system, it, it's not just a system, but it's how do we keep kids who are, you know, in peril safe? And in order to take a look at that, you know, I, I guess it really took taking this just incredibly extreme case of child abuse. I mean, he was tortured over the course of months. In, in just way, ways that are, is just difficult to believe. So, yeah, I mean, I think, it, I think it's important. It's a tough watch, and there's a point at which people may just feel like they've had it, you know, they, they've had as much as they can take of it, um, which I think is fine, too. It's, it's not for everyone, I guess. You know, if you feel like you're going to be triggered or you're going to find it too upsetting to see a thing about child abuse, like, this will absolutely 100% do it. So with that in mind, thumbs up, but it's it's a tough one. Kevin Flynn. I am a thumbs up. If I have a criticism, it would be sort of that last episode is too slow. They kind of drag out all those last beats, you know, the closing arguments and the jury deliberations and the death penalty phase. I think there's a tension there to kind of just wrap things up or, you know, and, and begin sort of the epilogue portion. 
Uh, but beyond that, I'd say that uh, there is sufficient anger to go around um, that the documentarians provide. They don't try to answer the question of like who's to blame, but they do lay out a case against just about everybody. That's pretty compelling. It's the abs- absolute uh, worst case scenario. It's well done and likely to be one of the documentaries that are going to stand out in a crowded Netflix queue. Hmm. Everybody walks funny, though, I found. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) There's a lot of funny, like, shambling going on in this show. I agree with you with the walking. I am giving this a big thumbs up. I enjoyed watching it more than my colleagues, not because I enjoy hearing about the most horrific story probably we've ever covered. I just think it was beautifully crafted. And I think that for filmmakers to put something together about a subject as difficult as this and figure out a way to work in dare I say, cliffhangers without them being ham-fisted and, you know, stupid to figure out ways to make it compelling, to keep it top of mind, to make it something where you want to watch the next one with this topic. I wanted to, and and my fellow reviewers here may not have all felt the same enthusiasm for it that I did, but I was really surprised at the dive I wanted to take into the next topic they were going to cover because they cover everything. This thing is impeccably sourced. I have one minor critique is that there is an overuse of B-roll in this documentary, just visual B-roll. Mm-hmm. I think that the story is well told. The time That's what is, B-roll is well used. But that I'm just saying, <laughs> like sometimes we hear, you know, things over and over again. We see Jonathan and Tommy in that same scene walking out of his house with that same tie, the tie. like 15 <laughs> times. Yeah. And it becomes incredibly apparent when they have all this footage of him sitting at his kitchen table doing all the other things that like the stuff that was shot afterwards, like the reshoot stuff. To me, it just stuck out a little bit because so much of this was so beautifully and perfectly made. That is a tiny quibble. Uh, I, I really love this documentary. Um, I think it's important. And maybe just my tolerance for watching and listening to difficult things is higher than your guys because I've just decided it's my mission. Like, I can't look away. So for me, it's a big thumbs up for the trials of Gabriel Fernandez. Moving on, let's do a bit of a palate cleanser, shall we? One of the things that we get asked a whole lot by our listeners on social media, in other forums, in response to our podcast is... What else are you guys listening to, watching, checking out? So a couple of times a year, we like to do a little bit of a recommendations roundup. Kevin, we need a theme song for this. (laughs) Okay. Perfect. you meant, yeah. Some sort of like roundup. Get him up. Move him out. (laughs) (laughs) Unofficially inseminated horses. <laughs> they get no. it out in the morning, not at lunchtime. So I asked you guys each to send me a few things that you would like to talk about that you've seen, that you've watched, that you're watching, that you're listening to. We might not get to everything, but Kevin, we are going to be providing a full list on our show notes and on our website, right? Crimebinder.com. Yes. Yep. All right. So Toby Ball, I'm going to start with you. What is the first thing that you would like our listeners to check out? Um, I'd like you to check out my favorite sports ball podcast. Nice. Uh, it used to be, there used to be a sports illustrated basketball podcast called open floor. And then freaking some venture capitalist bought sports illustrated and turned it into a, uh, you know, a content farm. And one of the people who was laid off was one of the co-hosts. 
So they went through a little period in the wilderness, and now they've reformed. It's called The Greatest of All Talk. It's actually, you have to pay. It's a $5 subscriber thing, yeah. which normally I'd be down on, but just to stick it to those jerks who, who broke up Sports Illustrated, <laughs> uh, it's well worth your money. It's Andrew Sharp and Ben Golliver. It's the one podcast I kind of listen to religiously. Look, no disrespect intended, but there's disrespect coming, Andrew, because yesterday- <laughs> I watched the matchup between our Lord and Savior, Giannis, and my firstborn son, Zion. And we're talking about the ultimate win connoisseur moment, the ultimate test of appreciating greatness. You have a 19-year-old kid who's getting a taste of what it's like to go head-to-head against the very best basketball player in the entire world for the first time in his life, right? And here you have a 25-year-old MVP about to be back-to-back MVP, welcoming the next generation of superstar to the NBA. So if you're into the NBA and you haven't heard it yet, I would highly recommend it. I think it's the best pro basketball podcast out there. That's the greatest of all talk, right, Toby? Greatest of all talk or GOAT for short. (laughs) Kevin, what have you got? What's your first recommendation? My first recommendation is the show Six. The one that I just told you to talk about? I thought I was going to steal it from you. You can't steal it from me. I wasn't on my list either because I thought you were going to talk about it. Sitting here all alone on a throne in a palace that I happen to own. Bring me some pheasant. Keep it on the bone. So this is a new musical. uh, We saw it in London and it just opened on Broadway. Bear with us. If you thought that Alexander Hamilton as a musical... Was a stupid idea. (laughs) Well, get ready for a musical with the six wives of Henry VIII. The the setup is that they are a girl band. It sounds so stupid. And Right. Bear with me, though. (laughs) You can't stop me because I'm the queen of the castle. Get down, you dirty rascal. Get down. And they, this night, one night only, they're going to have a contest to see which one of them had it worse. I put up with your sh- like every single day. But now it's time to sh- and listen when I say. It's really a reimagining of these six characters as six uh, contemporary pop divas. So Catherine of Aragon is very much like um, Beyonce and Jane... Jane Seymour is Adele, 100%. Jane Seymour is Adele. You can build me up, you can tear me down, you can try but I'm unbreakable. You can do your best. So it's really great and... So maybe you don't get to Broadway that often. They really have designed this as a 21st century show because they wanted it to go viral. So they put out all of the music on Spotify, and you can listen to it now. Get a, get a sense for it. Maybe you can't get out and see the show. The, when you see it live, it, it puts so much more context around the songs because sometimes you're like, oh, this is really kind of cutesy. No, it's like a real spectacle it's joyful. for a small show. It's joyful. Yeah, check it out. It's the only thing I've ever Is seen it? that have ten has ten women in it. It's all women. It's feminist as fuck. And super joyful. I loved it. Beck, I'm sorry. This is my recommendation. <laughs> Toby, what are you going to say? You have plenty of time to talk. It was in Chicago yeah. when uh, yes. we were there. And uh, 
my wife and daughter went to see it and really liked did it. Did they love it? Because it's fantastic. They did. It's the most yep, fun I've had it. at the theater ever. And I saw Book of Mormon shortly after it came out. I had just as much fun, if not more, at six. It's joyful. Laura, what is your first recommendation this evening? Um, well, Rebecca, I think we duplicated here. It's okay. Have, you can take it and I'll just add on. You can add on to it. So, because I know we like similar authors and I am on a huge audiobook bin since I got my AirPods, my Christmas gift to myself. So we know I love Anne Cleves and the Shetland series. The Shetland series ended. It was very, very sad. I didn't think I was going to be able to replace Jimmy Perez. But now Anne Cleves has a new series out. And the first book is The Long Call. She has a new protagonist in this series, uh, Detective Matthew Venn. The day they found the body on the shore, Matthew Venn was already haunted by thoughts of death and dying. He stood outside the North Devon crematorium on the outskirts of Barnstable. A bed of purple crocus spread like a pool at his feet, and he watched from a distance as the hearse carried his father to the chapel of rest. It's interesting. It's it's uh, set in, uh, you know, again, like this little seaside town and its um, body washes up on the beach. What I loved about the audiobook was the narrator. I found it very soothing to listen to. Uh, it was just kind of puts you right in the scene. And it's one of those that I like the way the pacing happens in this story because it's this sort of small town mystery and nobody is who they seem to be. You know, you, you don't know until the end who the person that actually did this is. is. And, and I like that when I can't guess and I don't know who the person is, who the killer is. Uh, what about you, Rebecca? I actually think Anne Cleves is one of the best mystery writers working today. I love all of her series. I love the Jimmy Perez series, the Shetland series. I love the Vera series. And I do think I was very skeptical, like Laura, when I heard there was going to be a new detective in a whole new series. But Matthew Venn, gay, former evangelical, uh, married guy living in this tiny town to he's kind of married to like a hippie it's so good it's and the setting is just so wonderful um speaking of setting i'd like to recommend another detective book series that our friend uh west coast podcaster and comedian janet varney recommended i check out that i fell in love with it's joey day's iq series there are four books so far iq is about a protagonist isaiah quintabe he's a 20 something unlicensed private detective in east long beach very rough neighborhood in los angeles area he uh basically takes cases from mostly members of his community and accepts payments in forms of whatever they can afford. Like sometimes he'll get like a pie, sometimes he'll get whatever. Hmm. But it's very Sherlock Holmes. He has this sort of deductive reasoning and the and the series is very transparent about it. He was like a high school genius who through a series of events um, ended up having to kind of go out on his own. And one of my best favorite nods to the Sherlock Holmesiness of the IQ series is that his sidekick is a childhood friend and a huge troublemaker who's also very helpful named Dotson, which is <laughs> like a nice nod to it. Because honestly, the series could not be any more different from Sherlock Holmes in its, in its setting, in its voices. Almost everyone in the series is black or Latino or Asian or just like not white. It takes place in a part of the country that like not a lot of literary or stuff or movies is set. I just love it. That's Joey Day's IQ series. There are four out so far. They're great and super entertaining audiobooks. I'm sure the printed books are great, too. And that's my first recommendation. Toby, back to you. Uh, well, I wasn't really expecting to have a Henry VIII theme going. Nice. <laughs> um, but my next recommendation is actually, I have not, it's not even out yet, but um, 
I think my favorite books are the uh, the Wolf Hall trilogy by Hilary Mantel, which is about Thomas Cromwell, who was sort of uh, like an advisor to Henry VIII, sort of the power behind the throne. Uh, the first two were Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. And the last of the trilogy is called The Mirror and the Light. And I think it's coming out, um, well, when this drops tomorrow. So that would be the Tuesday after the Monday this drops. It's called The Mirror and the Light. The early reviews have been great. Uh, the first two books were great. So I imagine this will be great. And I can't wait to read it. Kevin, number two for you. What's your next recommendation? Well, I have been really, I think I might have already mentioned this at some other point, but I've been enjoying the TV show Stumptown. We talked about it in the after show. We've not talked about it on the main show. We're out here. Born and raised. You know, you never forget. What? First firefight. Oh, Afghanistan. Mm. Chaos, the noise. It's full. Your dog tags don't match the name on your credit card. You asked if I was from around here figuring we could go back to my place because there's a woman back at yours, am I right? Thanks, sweetheart. Yeah. This is this is based on a graphic novel, and it's set in Portland, Oregon, and it's about a a nascent private investigator. Uh, her name is Dex Perios, former Marine, played by Aunt Robin from How I Met Your Mother. How I Met Your Mother. Colby Smolders. Colby Smolders. Uh, and uh, Janet Sparkle. What was the character's name? Robin Sparkles. Robin Sparkles. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she's got a very- You literally just fucked up all of those names, and that's why I love you. (laughs) Tell us why you like this show. (laughs) Uh, Well, I like it because it's a fun detective setting very much kind of like a Columbo, where she's not terribly good at it, but she's always getting into trouble. But she's scrappy and uh, finds a way to solve the mystery. And she's got a great relationship with uh, her best friend who owns a bar, it's played by Jake Johnson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he, he from was, New Girl. From New Girl, and uh, Spider Man into the Multiverse. He played the older, fatter Peter Parker <laughs> cartoon character. He just shines on the screen, I think. And so they're they're both very good together and separately. And uh, yeah, it's a lot of fighting, which I love. Like, there's always there's always an action scene. So every many episode. fist fights in this show. She can fight. <laughs> she's not a she's a girl fighter. She's great. Also known as a fighter. Yeah. She's tough. <laughs> she's tough. Uh she's marine tough. And so yeah, it's on ABC, so everybody can watch it. Laura, you have a couple of TV shows and recommendations list. What is next for you? Uh what is next for me? I'm gonna go with Lock and Key. And I talked about this a little bit in the after show a few weeks ago. Um, that's the new series on Netflix. And I, I kind of think it's like a tween, uh, teen, young adult sort of series, but I liked it anyway. Welcome to Key House. I could never get your father to talk about his life here. My kids need a home. Does it have to be this home? So this is based on a comic book series uh, of the same name that was created by Joe Hill, who's my neighbor here in Exeter, and Gabrielle Rodriguez. And so it's sort of like a cross between, think of something like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where there's kids and there's some sort of magical thing in a house that they move into. Uh, but in this case, there's a big New England part to it. So this these uh, family moves back to like the family 
home after their father dies. Uh, the mother and the three children move in to the family home in this. It looks like someplace on like the North Shore of Massachusetts and um, says it was filmed in Nova Scotia, but it's supposed to be somewhere like North Shore like. And they move into this house and they find out that there's a series of keys that can do different things. And so at first you're thinking, oh, this is this lighthearted little story, but it turns dark pretty quickly. And by the end, it turns really dark. And there is quite a number of twists. The last episode was very, very clever. And I don't want to give it away and and make it a spoiler, but very clever in the way that it tied together the story. So it's, it's a little bit like, you know, one of those like Buffy the Vampire Slayer sort of like teen kind of shows. But at the same time, the plotting is very interesting. I would recommend it. I mean, I watched it over vacation week. And I thought, oh, I thought, oh, the teenagers in the house will watch this with me. Of course, they don't want to be seated in the same room as me. So they didn't. But um, it was it was entertaining. And it was it was different. And it was something that I sat down and watched like episode after episode of it, um, just because I wanted to see how it was going to resolve. Listen, don't shit on teen stuff, Laura, because Buffy the Vampire Slayer was one of the greatest television shows of all time. Was it not Kevin Flynn? Was. <laughs> well, then you would like this show. Laura okay. and T. And you will never look at a key the same way again after you see somebody stick one in the back of their head and whoop. <laughs> well, I'm going to recommend something. Uh, um, next thing I'm recommend needs no help from us at all. But the last two episodes have been so outstanding that I want to tell our listeners if they are not on the Reply All Train, now is the time to get back on the Reply All Train, one of the greatest uh, granddaddy podcasts out there, Reply All from Gimlet Media. The last two episodes have blown my mind. So the last episode uh, before the one that came out this week was about was uh, basically about Ashley Feinberg, who works with Slate. Um, she is the reporter who uncovered Pierre Delecto, <laughs> uh, Mitt Romney's secret Twitter handle, and also James Comey's secret Twitter handle. Mm-hmm. She's like the internet Twitter detective, and she basically like sort of talked about how she does that, how she's able to find out like the secret identity people on the internet. It's great. But the episode that came out this week, today as we record, The Case of the Missing Hit is one of the greatest podcast episodes I've listened to in such a long time. I want everyone to listen to it. It's about a guy who remembers in his mind what was an incredibly popular song, like a pop song from the 1990s. He's shocked to hear his wife has never heard the song as he sings it. And he goes home and she's like, what are you talking about? And he can't find it on Spotify and he can't find it on any of the apps. They get home from dinner. It's late at night and he stays up all night basically trying to find this thing on the Internet and can't and writes in to reply all and says, please help me solve the mystery of what happened to this song, which I believe was an incredibly popular pop song. It is fan fucking tastic radio it felt almost like he'd found like a hole in the world like a glitch he said it wasn't like this was the best song in the world like that wasn't the problem the way he described it he said it's a song where it's like the choruses are kind of in the style of u2 but the verses are very bare naked ladies so far you're selling me like a song that i really don't want to listen to well don't worry you can't um but just the point is not whether or not it's a good song the point is that because tyler couldn't find it he just could not let go of this thing. They need Starly Kind. Too. It's incredible. It's so, so good. So if you've gotten off the Reply All train or you've never listened to Reply All and you don't know what it is, it's ostensibly a show about the internet, but it's really about everything. 
in the last two episodes, The Case of the Missing Hit and Pierre Delecto and the Spooky Adventure. I cannot recommend them <laughs> highly enough. They are must-listen podcasts. All right, Toby, you're next up. What you got? Uh, well, this is going out to the six Crime Readers On listeners who also like The Grateful Dead. <laughs> um, <laughs> I got a story for that, Toby. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so there's a, a podcast that I've discovered that's called uh, 36 from the Vault. You take a step back, take another step back, take another step back. Welcome to 36 from the Vault, a tape-by-tape journey through the Grateful Dead's 36-volume Dick's Pick series. I'm Stephen Hyden. And I'm Rob Mitchum. If you like the Grateful Dead, you probably know... Uh, that there's a series of releases that are unfortunately called Dick's Picks mm-hmm. uh, because there's this guy, Dick Lavalla, who was sort of the archivist for all the recordings of Grateful Dead concerts. And he released like this series of live discs that he thought were particularly good. Uh, so what this podcast does is it's two music journalists who every other week will do a deep dive into... Uh, one of these releases. So it's basically a Grateful Dead concert. Like, I'm not a huge deadhead, but I like the dead. And I've their conversations are surprisingly for like a two-hour podcast about a, a concert from like 1975 are, are very entertaining. Yeah, I'd give it, give it a shot. I don't think if you don't like the Grateful Dead, there's probably no reason to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's a pass for me. But I trust you, Toby. It's good for some folks out there. Laura Bricker, what is your next recommendation? I am going to go with Outlander. Sing me a song of a lass that is gone. Say, could that lass be I? This is the time I'm going to convince Toby Ball to watch Outlander. Season five just kicked off and I restarted my subscription so I could watch it. Um, For those of you who have not watched seasons one through four, This is the historical time travel Scottish romance. uh, Right in Toby's wheelhouse. I think Toby (laughs) would love it. We have Claire. That hunky red haired guy. She goes, yeah, she goes through the stones and meets the hot, good looking Scottish man, Jamie. They've had many adventures, but now they're they've uh, and now they've had their kids. uh, Well, it's very confusing because she went back to the future where she gave birth to her child, which she passed off as another man's child for a couple of years. But now she's gone back to the past and her child followed her back to the past with her fiance from the future. And Jesus now Christ. I can't even keep up. But all I'm going to say is there's a lot of sex happening this season. Uh, even the old blind auntie lady is getting some sex this season. So wow. things are going That's well, well for should. everybody in Outlander. <laughs> no. She deserves it, <laughs> but it's it's an interesting historical time. So they are they are settled, um, in I want to say like North Carolina somewhere, and there it's it's like right so on the realistic <laughs> somewhere. It's in the it's it's like the start of the Revolutionary War. So we're we're getting to the point where um you know there's some uprisings happening and you know some interesting history stuff going on there but it's really about lady sex and we should say also known as sex and we should say Lara the other recommendation that you're not going to have time to talk about which we will highlight on our website and show notes is the Dublin Murders another yes. series on stars based on the great ton of French books right yes yes and I'm on episode two of that and I it's um really clever have you guys watched it of course we have yeah 
Okay, so I haven't watched it and because I didn't have stars for a while. So now I'm all excited because there's all these shows I can watch. And so, yeah, that is, I would recommend that. I mean, at two episodes in and I can't wait to watch more of it. Kevin, what's your next recommendation? Well, speaking of the lady sex. Yeah, otherwise known as sex. Sex. I'm going to recommend the podcast Dying for Sex from Wondery. Wow, okay. Uh, this is um, a six-part series. And the premise is that uh, Nikki Boyer, who is the host, her best friend Molly, has stage four breast cancer. And so facing her own mortality, she decides to make some changes in her life, which includes leaving her her loveless marriage mm-hmm. and going on sexual adventures. Nice. And so... Wait, is this like true? It's like nonfiction? Okay. No, yeah, oh. it's nonfiction. Oh, wow. And, you know, she has these discussions about her adventures with Nikki and I mean it's it's like right from off the bat it's like uh, she talks about how she got a happy ending at, from the Masus. uh-huh and it goes <laughs> and she's really like living out all of her fantasies uh, you know exploring her kinks and just trying to live her best life while she is dying mm. and I'll tell you it's certainly it's provocative and fun in that way but you know also for those of us who you know may have had some health issues and you've contemplated these things about living your best life I think it's got a really good message five of the six episodes are out and uh, it's life affirming it's life affirming I have my fears about what dying for sex is going to be in the final episode yeah. but Otherwise, I think it's it's a kind of a fun lesson. Other things on your list include the new season of Better Saul, Call Saul coming out, which yep. I know you love, and Pod Save America. Why is that on your list, briefly? Well, I'll say that uh, now that we're getting into the voting part of the uh, the primaries, the uh, political talk is uh, a, a lot more interesting. It's no longer hypothetical. They're talking, you know, a lot more about what's actually happening on the ground, and I I find that. Very enlightening. Now, Toby, the final thing on your list, which we didn't get to, was a little film that you may have heard of called Knives Out. You watched it and liked it, Toby? Yeah, I don't get out to the theater too much, uh, but we did go because my my daughter really wanted to go. You know, it's not going to win any Oscars. It's not going to be considered a classic, but it's fun, and it's like kind of a throwback to... Uh, you know, like death trap and and that kind murder of murder by of, death. Yeah, sort of capery. Yeah, little twists and turns. Some some uh, larger than life characters. So it's fun. Uh, well, my next recommendation is Matt Goldman's Nils Shapiro series. I listened to them on audiobooks. There are three so far. Uh, Matt Goldman is a really interesting mystery writer. He used to be a writer, Kevin, for yeah. Seinfeld. Ah. TV writer turned novelist. Um, I really like the series. It takes place in an American, great American setting, Minneapolis, and does a lot with that setting. Uh, like similarly to Joey Day's IQ book series, like it takes advantage of the setting and makes the setting part of the story. And one of the things I love about the Neil Shapiro series uh, is that it doesn't have a lot of the dumb tropes that come with detective series. Like our protagonist, Neil Shapiro, is fine. He's not an alcoholic. He's not like a disaster who can't like afford to pay for his car. He's just, you know, a guy. Yeah, he's divorced and he's got like some personal issues, but it's not like debilitating. You know what I mean? None of that bullshit. I really, really enjoy this series. And the thing that I'll uh, just mention briefly is something I talked about on the after show last week. And that is Deepwater, a one season Australian mystery show from Netflix, which I super enjoyed. Again, very trope-breaking, very atmospheric, great setting. So check out the Neil Shapiro audiobook series or book series and check out Deepwater on 
Netflix. Those are recommendations. Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of of the week. week. Should have swiped left. Christopher Castillo didn't make a good impression on the lady he met on a dating app. The unidentified woman met the Rhode Island man at his parents' house and they left in her car. The essential stranger drank wine in the front seat and asked her to stop at a nearby bank. After a prolonged wait, Castillo rushed back to the car with a gun and $1,000 in his hands. When he told her to floor it, she did, but she realized she didn't want to be Bonnie to his Clyde. She pulled over at the first sign of a police car and left Castillo hiding in her Nissan Maxima. After fighting and spitting on the cops, they dragged him out of the car and to the back of the cruiser. That's when the date officially ended. (laughs) That's when it ended. (laughs) In February, Castillo was sentenced to five years for the heist. The getaway driver was not charged for her involuntary participation. Panel, assuming for a minute this woman is a live and let live kind of person and agreed to go on a second date with this guy, what do you think they would do on that second date? Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Well, they might be hungry, uh, but he might not have any money because he's been in jail for five years. So, (laughs) I mean, I'm thinking Dine and Dash might be in their future. Mm, Very good. Very good. Toby Ball, what do you think this couple's going to do on their second date? You know, I'm not sure, but I think the plan is she's supposed to pick him up with a helicopter and the prison exercise. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, what do you think they're going to do on their second date? Oh, this time he's going to rob a florist. Give her some flowers. (laughs) So romantic. Yeah. And then they're going to go visit his parole officer. Nice. All right. We should probably end the show on that note. But before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? (laughs) Oh, we do. Now, you've heard of (laughs) werewolves of London. We have cats in London, too, apparently. Although, I don't know, because I wasn't there. I'm just taking your word for it. And I am taking the word of Sarah Eggers, who you met. Yes. When you had a meetup in London last week. So I got a lovely email from Sarah, who also met Teddy. And uh, she wanted to submit her four cats for joint cat of the week. She is not on social media, so she hasn't been able to advocate for her cats until now, And but has been a fan since the beginning, which is awesome. It would be a real treat for them to be featured, only bested by Toby reading out one of my Amazon purchases instead, RIP Amazon affiliate. The cats are Rupert, Snow, Mila, and Junior. They are international travelers and have relocated with them from Malaysia and the U.S. before that. Rupert just had surgery on Friday, which is why her husband was not able to come and meet you guys when you were in London. Mm. Poor Rupert. Yes, Sarah was wonderful. You know which one Sarah was, Kevin? Of course, yeah. Right? They were pulled back. Yes. Nice smile. From Alabama originally. Expat living in London. Trying to get her accent. With a super weird accent that went between Alabama and English, right? I wouldn't say that so she could hear it. Loved her. (laughs) Loved her. Loved them all. All right, Laura Bricker. If folks who actually are on the internet and social media want to pitch you their animals, cats, dogs, beavers, whatever, to be Cat of the Week, how can they find you online? At Laura Bricker. And Toby Ball, folks want to reach out to you and give you a hug and tell you what a great job you're doing on this podcast and how great your voice is and how resonant. How can they find you on Twitter? Um, 
I can't imagine anybody saying any of that stuff, but I'm at Toby Ball and H. And Kevin Flynn, if folks want to reach out to you and say, hey, Kevin, you're going to let Rebecca get a puppy soon, right? <laughs> How yeah. can they find you oh on Twitter? God, the puppies. <laughs> I'm going to show up with a puppy. <laughs> uh, I'm a Kevin Peen Flynn. <laughs> and if you want to follow me on Twitter or Instagram, you can find me at Reb Lavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Crime Writers On, and I encourage you strenuously to join our amazing community in our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way, and it used to be boring, but thanks to Meredith Plunkett, it no longer is. Support the show on patreon.com slash partners in crime media, and you will get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Sky Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. Our line editor is the very handsome Henry Lavoie. Our social media and newsletter maven is fellow Taco Bell stan Meredith Plunkett. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our New Hampshire basement, where we don't make jokes about being in a closet after we reviewed the trials of Gabriel Fernandez. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Mother Lara? makes. Yes. Yes, that is me. Hello. Hi. Hey. Mother makes much music. <laughs> Minnie meets Mickey at the movies. He's doing his vocal exercises. Mm, oh, Minnie okay. It's not weird. Just go with it. Mm, <laughs> Toby? Mother makes much money. Yeah. How you doing? You sound like you're a million miles away. Is it better now? Yes. You're missing Kevin's beautiful vocal exercises. Mm. Are you guys recording? Yeah. Recording what? Mm, moron. <laughs> mm. Partners in Crime Media. Media.